If you want to open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight. 2 Peter 3, we're going to look at verses 17 to 18. And we're going to title the message, Spiritual Growth in Grace, Knowledge, and Glory. So we'll just read two verses here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And Peter writes, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But, he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him, he says, be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. And Father, I just ask you, Lord, you'll speak to us tonight in your word and speak to us once again about your grace and how it works in our lives and help our understanding with that, Lord, that we can follow and serve you more fully and be more surrendered to you and your will. And I thank you that you'll do that for us and meet with us here tonight in Jesus' name. So as an introduction you know, ask the question, you know, why was Second Peter written? And the majority of Second Peter, he keeps bringing up the fact that I'm not giving you any new information. I believe it's five times he tells them I'm writing this letter to bring to your remembrance things that you already know, reminding them you can't forget these things. It's important to your salvation. It's another one of those letters where you got somebody that knows he's going to be off the scene shortly. He says that I'm going to be putting off this tabernacle shortly and I'm writing these things to you. I just he keeps saying, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, don't forget. And we live in a day and age now where because of the Internet and everything else, we just want to devour all this new information. We want everything new and really more importantly is we need to remember what's old, what we've already been taught, because people are constantly seeking new teachers, new revelation, new teaching. And all I can say is there's nothing new under the sun, because what's happening now is we're having all these old errors from, you name it, repackaged in different ways, but it's the same old errors. And people are acting like, wow. Well, we never heard this before, and it's been around forever, and we've been taught about it before, and they're following things that are not good. And so that's why Peter is sending this warning in verse 17. He's saying, look, I don't want you to be like the people in verse 16. And what does he say about them? He says, he talks about that Paul writes things in his epistles, verse 16, speaking in them these things, which are some hard to be understood but they which are unlearned and unstable, they rest what he says, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Unlearned and unstable. Unlearned Christians that are ignorant and unstable means they're weak, they're unstable, and they're easily moved by enticing words. And they are the ones that these false teachers Pray on. So he says that over in 2 Peter 2. We're in 3, but just look over in chapter 2, verse 14. But we taught on this in, as far as the false teaching goes, but he says right there of these false teachers that they have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. And look what it says there in the middle of that verse. They beguile unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices cursed children. That's a pretty strong thing that he says there. But they entice or they lure, just like you would put bait on a hook to lure a fish. That's what they do. They entice unstable souls. And the unstable are those that want to follow the crowds. They want to go by popular opinion. They want to follow the popular teachers. And I'm saying... Just because somebody's popular, everybody likes them, the crowd seems to be going that way. Is that really, do you just follow all that because somebody sounds good or you like most of what they say? And so these people that he's talking about here in verse 16, it says they do what? They rest the scriptures. They twist. They distort. Or the word actually could mean they torture. They twist, distort. They torture its true meaning. So they'll take a statement from Scripture. This is the way cults are set up and the way false teaching comes. They take a statement from Scripture and they give it a meaning that it was not intended to have. A false meaning. And that's where the end of these false teachers and people that follow them, where do they end up? What does it say happens to them? They rest those scriptures, they twist, they distort them, as they do, he says, also other scriptures, and he says it's to their own destruction. 
to their own destruction. Destruction is the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 about the broad way. The broad way is the way that leads to what? Destruction. It's the same word. And Jesus himself said, how many go on that broad way that leads to destruction? Which is why Peter's given this warning here. He doesn't just say it's the few because he's saying it's the few that are where? They're on the narrow path. And so the broad way, and it's talking about religious people. He's not talking about the world in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about the broad and narrow way. He's talking about religious people. He's saying most, many of the religious people are going to be on the broad way that leads to destruction. He says many there be which go in thereat. And so it's serious what the warning is here. And you'll say, you know, well, and this is what everybody thinks. Well, it's not talking about me. It's talking about somebody else. It's not talking about me. You think about it. Nobody plans on going on the broad way. Nobody comes up with a, hey, I got this scheme. I'm, I'm going to be deceived. It sounds like a good goal. I mean, does anybody do that? Nobody does that. That's not the way it goes. And so that's why he says here, he's talking about those other ones. They rest the scriptures, the unlearned and unstable. And that's why that first word in King James is ye, but it's really you. So it's in the front and center. He's saying, here's what these other people are doing. Rest in these scriptures. They're unstable. But he's saying, but I'm writing to you. I'm, it's emphatic. He said, I am speaking to you, beloved. And so he's got a real concern for these people. I'm concerned about you that you don't be deceived like these other ones are. Don't let yourself be led away with the error of the wicked. And led away means to be carried away. Carried away with peer pressure. That's what it's talking about. You're like carried away with the crowd. And I'm saying it's happening. And there's a lot of pressure within our group to be carried away with the crowds and question what we've been taught in the past. It's happening all the time. And he's saying, don't do that. And the other place where that word is used there in verse 17, where he says, beware, lest you also be led away. Where else that word is used is in Galatians 2.13. And Paul says in Galatians 2, you don't have to turn to it, but at the beginning of that, he says, I came to Antioch. And he says, I had a face-to-face. I withstood Peter to his face. And why did he do that? I mean, that's pretty serious, face-to-face confrontation with two apostles. And he said the reason is, is because Peter is with the Gentiles, and he's eating with them, he's fellowshipping with them, everything's good, until he says certain Jews, believing Jews, came from James. And then all of a sudden, old Peter doesn't want to be associated with the Gentiles. He's like, wants nothing to do with them. He acts, treats them like they're unclean. And Paul said, the other people that were with Peter, the other believing Jews, followed Peter. Because, think about it, who's not going to follow the apostle Peter with what he's doing? Who's going to want to tell him, to his, hey Peter, what you're doing? What are you doing? This isn't right. Nobody's doing that. So they're following him. And he says, even Barnabas... Barnabas was, it's the same word, led away with Peter. Led away, his faithful companion, Barnabas. The name means son of encouragement, a warrior for the Lord Jesus Christ. But he couldn't even stand up to Peter. So you think about that. You think Barnabas, he's a grand saint, a great saint. And even he, it says, was led away with this error because of who was the one propagating it, Peter. And Paul said, I had to stand up toe to toe to Peter and get things straightened out there. So trust me, all of us would need to listen. If a saint as solid as Barnabas could be led away by the crowd, swayed by the crowd, don't think that it couldn't happen to me or you. That is naive and arrogant. It really is. We can't think that that couldn't happen to us. And that's why Peter has that warning there in verse 17. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware. He's saying beware that you fall from your own steadfastness. Fall from that firm grip he's saying that you have on the truth. And I'm saying that's happening. I'm seeing in here people that have said, yeah, we embrace this. And all of a sudden, all now, they're not so sure about it. And they're letting it go. And they're moving away from that steadfastness that they had at one time. And they're following other things in popular crowds. Because who wants to be the odd man out? And that's the way it is. 
and that steadfastness fall from your firm grasp on the truth or your firm commitment to conviction or belief. You got to be committed to truth once you see it. You can't be easily swayed. And so just take, for instance, we're in chapter three. What's the truth he's talking about here in chapter three that they need to hold on to? And well, in verse seven, he says it's the belief that this present world is going to be destroyed. Look what it says in verse seven. He says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, they are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Because other men were saying that isn't going to happen. We keep hearing about all this destruction's going to happen and judgment's going to fall. We hear that today. They're like, what are you talking about? Everything just keeps going on and life just keeps going on and one year is the same as the next. And Christians have been saying this forever and ever and ever. And Peter's saying, uh-uh, it's sure to come. It's going to come. It was predicted by the Old Testament saints. It's been predicted by the apostles that things are going to come. This world's going to be judged. It's going to be burnt up with the ungodly. And he says, the day of the Lord, the other thing you need to remember is it's going to come like a thief in the night. And that's in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord, it will come. And how's it going to come? He's reminding them as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein, they shall be burned up. And I'm saying if you're living for life here in this world, you need to realize, he's saying, you need to look and realize this is all going to be gone. Whatever you have, whatever you're cherishing, whatever all, it is all going to be burnt up. Guaranteed. And it's going to happen quickly. And it's going to catch people unawares. And so he says, so because of that, the other thing I'm putting you in remembrance of is that we need to live holy lives in anticipation of all that happening, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's in verses 13 to 14. He says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, there's a promise about this, we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein will dwell what? Righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, he says, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him. How? He's saying, you know it's going to happen and you know it's coming. And you know your day of judgment's coming. We're all going to die one way or another and have to stand before him. So he's saying when that happens, whenever that happens, we need to be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now what he's saying? He's saying we need to be looking forward to what's coming and not get caught up with what's right in front of our nose. Isn't that what he's telling us? That's what he's saying. Look, he says it three times looking for in verses 12, 13, and 14. He says looking for, that's what we're looking for in hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Verse 13, nevertheless, we according to his promise do what? We look for, that's what we're looking for, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. He says, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, says you're looking for all that, be diligent that you qualify for it, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So in other words, he's saying one day it's all going to be shaken. And the only thing that's going to stand are those that are living righteous lives. That's who's going to dwell in eternity. He's saying, so you know all this is going to happen. That's his whole point here. He's saying, verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things beforehand, beware lest you be beguiled. And somebody talks you out of your faith and talks you into living in a way you shouldn't be and believing things you shouldn't believe. He's saying that ahead of time. And so that's where we move down into verse 18. So how do we get ready for that day that's coming, the day of the Lord, the day when everything's going to be burned up? Verse 18, he says, we should do what? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what do we have to do? We have to grow. And we grow how? We grow in grace. There's a book Spurgeon has out. It's a great little book. I think I got it back there. All of grace. Because it is all of grace. I'm saying it's grace that draws us to him. Grace that taught our heart to fear. It's grace that gives us the faith to trust in him. But it doesn't just stop there. Everything in our Christian life in the final, our growth, our ability to stay with it, everything will be by God's grace. And that's why it's saying we will cast our crowns at his feet. 
There's nothing we're going to take credit for. We've been talking about grace, and that's how it is. And so he's saying we have to grow in grace because growth is natural, isn't it? And to be expected. So when it doesn't happen, it's sad, isn't it? So we look at people. And when people don't grow like they should, I remember there was a guy when I used to paint. I I guess he's still around. But I guess he was in his 30s. I don't know how old he was. He was older than I was. But mentally, he never grew. He was like a little kid. But he was older and bigger than me. He'd come around and talk to me while I was painting. But he just had the mind of a child. And I'm saying, it's sad. He couldn't help it. It wasn't his fault. I'm saying, when people don't grow, they're 30 years old, but they're acting like they're five, you look at that and you think, man, this is just not right. You feel sorry for them, don't you? It's sad, but it's even sadder when we meet Christians that are spiritually 10, 20, 30 years old, and yet they have the spiritual maturity of a baby. So they still gossip and backbite and slander, get mad when they don't get their way. They throw fits. They quit talking to you. And that's what you have. So don't we expect babies to act like babies? I mean, I do. So a newborn Christian, they're going to do things that somebody that's been in this walk 10, 20, 30 years, you know, you just got to give them some leeway, don't you? I mean, what are you going to expect? They may still be smoking cigarettes and not have been convicted about that yet. Somebody just comes in there and might reek of cigarettes. God hadn't dealt with them. So they just do things like that. You have to give them a little understanding. But Paul says you shouldn't stay that way, and especially not here. In Ephesians 4.14, he says that we henceforth be no more children, no more infants, tossed to and fro, carried away with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So Paul says a child will get carried away with every wind of doctrine. So you can get a child up to a certain point to believe in Santa Claus, right? But try that on an adult and see how far you get. And that's not going to work real well. So you can get a a child to believe things they really aren't real because they don't know any better yet. And he talks about that they believe every wind of doctrine by the slight of men. That word slight really, it literally means playing at dice, tricking, cheating. The picture you get is, I remember one time I went to a pool alley with this guy. <laughs> and uh, he took me, and this guy had three cups, and he had a little ball underneath there. And he'd keep playing that old game with the ball. You know, you're trying to guess which one is that. And, you know, he's got it cupped under his fingers, how they do all that stuff. But they deceive you. And he's saying, that's what these people do to children. They deceive them. Every time the ball's over there, no, it's over here. Because he's playing games. They're deceiving. They're playing tricks with the word. Cunning craftiness. And he's saying, that's what children fall for, enamored by magicians, because it all seems real and amazing that it's happening. And that's what people do with the word. They twist it to make what you want to hear, and it sounds good. Itching ears is what it talks about. So how do we grow out of that? How do we grow out of childhood to where we're adults and we're not easily deceived? So turn over to 1 Peter 2. Look what he says there. It's not like I'm saying something that we have not heard before. So he says in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, Wherefore or therefore, laying aside, this is all the things kids do, malice, guile, hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speaking. Put all that away. He says, as a newborn babe, desire what? The sincere milk of the word, and what will that do for you? That you may grow thereby. And that word desire is a forceful word. It means to have more than just, man, I kind of like chocolate ice cream. No, it means like a yearning, like I really want this is what it means. Somebody that is like really hungry and ready to eat. And that's what it's talking about that. And so I'm saying all Christians, new or old, I think should have that strong desire to feed on God's word. And that's what will help us to grow and stay strong. So God's grace comes in our lives, but he has means, means to bring that grace to us and that we can grow thereby. And so the means he's given us are the four pillars we talked about in Acts 2.42. 
And so it's the teaching of the apostles is one means of grace, this word that we can grow thereby. That's God's grace. When his anointing's on the word through prayer and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer, the word, fellowship of the saints is another means of grace. And the ordinances, the bread and cup and baptism. That's how God delivers grace to us, not in the Catholic sense. But listen, it says of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 2.40 that the child Jesus grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And it says of Jesus as a child that the grace of God was upon him. Think of that. The grace of God was upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he grew in wisdom. How? How did that happen? It goes on to say in a few verses later, Luke 2, 46, it says it came to pass. His parents had taken him to Jerusalem and after three days they couldn't find him. After three days they did find him in the temple sitting in the middle of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And it says all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So the Son of God, when he was a baby, when he was a young boy, he didn't just automatically know everything, did he? The Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't just, wasn't osmosis. He's God himself, God in the flesh. But it said he had to hear the word, didn't he? And he even had to ask them questions. It's not like these guys didn't know the Bible. They knew the Bible. And he knew which questions to ask by the grace of God. But he's hearing preaching. He's asking questions. He's listening to their answers. He's giving them answers. And that is the grace of God upon him. And that's how he learned he desired the sincere milk of the word, didn't he? Parents can't find him. Now, he's not worried about playing ball or whatever that the kids did back then. Kids of all generations have always played and done other things. No, his interest is right here. I've got to be about my father's business. I've got to learn this word. Think about it. How was he able to do battle with the devil in the wilderness? With Satan. So it wasn't because he was letting his Bible collect dust. It wasn't because of that. So he believed what he himself inspired Moses to write. And that was what? Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. And that's what he quoted to the devil in the wilderness, didn't he? Saying that's got to be our number one priority. Now, I know a lot of people are, have those Bible reading things. That is good. But we have to read, we have to meditate. And in doing those things or reading the Word, that's how God brings back things to you, convicts you of things, builds up your faith, everything that we need. A lot of times when you're feeding on the husk of the world, you don't even realize how much malnutrition you have until things get tough. And then all of a sudden you realize, man, I haven't been feeding on the right stuff. And so we need that. So when the devil comes to Jesus and he's going to play the cup game with Jesus in the wilderness and he quotes him Psalm 91. But what is he doing? He put the ball under the wrong cup. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not playing that game with you. Psalm 91 jumping off the pinnacle and all he says, no, it's also written because I know the Bible. I'm not going just because you quote scripture. I'm not accepting what you say, Mr. Devil. But a lot of people do, don't they? Because it's some guy that they like. And he quotes some scripture, they just accept it. And Jesus said, wait a minute, what you're saying doesn't line up. I've studied this. And he says, you're not to tempt the Lord your God. I'm not playing that game. But that only comes because, and he had to go, it goes clear back to when he was a kid. And thereon, he had a strong desire for the milk of the word. And to rightly discern what it said. So turn, if you would, over to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. And look what it says there in Hebrews 5. So we're saying, how do we grow in the grace of God? Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14, and it says there, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And he says, you are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a what? A babe. So obviously the writer here is talking to people that have been saved more than a day. (laughs) 
Is anybody in here just get saved? Maybe there was in the past weekend, so we'll cut you all the slack you need. But if you've been truly born again, it's going to be a hard time getting you out to go do something else besides reading your Bible, I would say. That's the way it was for a lot of people, I think. It was the way it was for me, and it wasn't something I was working up. That's just what I wanted to do. I couldn't read enough of the Bible because I couldn't understand it before. I tried to read it when I was unsaved. I couldn't get anything out of it. But man, once I got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean, wow, I can understand and read it. It makes sense. It's leaping off the page to me. I couldn't get enough of it. I played basketball for 21 years. Who cares? They're, they're mad at me at church, these guys. <laughs> oh, you're so deep. You're going to stay home and read the Bible. You won't come play basketball with us. I'm like, man, I did that for 21 years of my life, however many years. I'd do that any time. I hadn't read my Bible for any time. And especially when I couldn't understand it. I'm like, I'll see you guys later. We'll play. And I played. How all that went. But, but anyways, that's the way it should be. Should be a strong desire there because he says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But look at verse 14. It says, But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And what's that telling us there? It's saying it's not just a matter of going through your Bible program and checking off what you've read. You've got to obey what you're reading. Put it into practice. And that's what it means by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Reason of use, that means constant practice. Constant practice. Constantly putting into practice what you're reading. Have their senses. That literally means an organ of sense. The ability to make moral decisions. Have their senses Exercised, training for the Olympics is what that word exercise means. Disciplined, trained. And that's what mature people will do. So it's saying so by constant practice or obedience to God's word, your ability to make moral decisions will be disciplined so you can discern both what is good and what is evil. You'll know. The ESV, I like the way they translate that part there. They say they have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. So when you know the word, you've listened, you've checked it out, you've asked the questions like Jesus did, nothing wrong with asking questions till you have understanding, and then you put that into practice, then some guy comes along a little bit later and tries to tell you, you're like, wait a minute, no, 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 I know that what you're saying is not right, I can discern that. God's given me discernment. A spiritual baby, though, they can't have discernment, make good decisions. So let's just take a for instance. I could have talked about anything. So somebody just gets saved. They don't know any better. They will just sit and criticize the president and the government and run them down like a dog because they think that's the right thing, the patriotic thing to do. It's what they ought to be doing. And all their friends have done it, and they've done it all their lives. They've never been taught. But if you or I have been saved 10, 15, 20 years or whatever, and you sit and belittle the government and the president, you've got a problem. And I would say you're without excuse because there's been plenty of time to read Romans 13, which says this, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power or authority but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resist the power of Resist the appointment of God or ordinance, appointment of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. He goes on to say in Romans 13, 7, render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Peter goes on to say, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. And Peter says, Honor the king whether he's Republican or Democrat. It doesn't really matter whether he's a dictator or whatever. But the point of this is, in looking at Hebrews 5, is obedience 
is the key to growth and grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes don't we talk about having head knowledge and heart knowledge? And really, we need to have both, don't we? Because you have to read the word and understand it. It does say, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind. It's not like your mind's out of gear. So you have to read the word to know about the Lord, who he is, what he promises to do for it. And that's head knowledge. You can't bypass that. It's important. And so people that are constantly being, I'm led of the spirit, and they do these bizarre things, they don't have enough head knowledge. If you can put it that way, they don't know the word well enough to be able to discern it. God's not going to have you do that. Nothing wrong with being led of the Spirit. I mean, everything you're going to do in life is not spelled out specifically in the Word, but it is in principle. And so when this Spirit in your head is telling you to do something that is in principle, violates what the Word says, then it's not the Lord. And that's the way that works. So we need to have head knowledge. But you have to get the head knowledge down into here, don't we? And so where it's heart knowledge, and that comes from how? That comes from obedience, So we read in the Bible, and it's clear to me that Jesus promises to be our healer, doesn't he? So you have to read that to know that, and you read through all of what we've been reading through in Mark, and you see all the way that our living Savior, how he deals with people that are sick. So you have to read that to know that, because faith's not blind, it has to be based on truth. And so, but that goes from your head into here when you trust and obey that, that he says. And then it goes from being head knowledge to heart or experiential knowledge, something that you have experienced. And that's what he's talking about here in Hebrews 5. You hear the word, but you've exercised your senses to discern that this is how God wants me to live. And I know it works. And that's how maturity comes through that. So obedience will bring a personal knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because anybody can read. If you can understand English, you can with your mind understand that he says he'll heal you. But it's not until you trust him that you know he is your healer. Amen? And that's what we need to know. Obedience brings personal knowledge. And so we'll see that clearly if you turn over to John 14. John 14, verse 21. Jesus said this, he says, he that has my commandments, that's you have to read them and have them, and does what? Keeps them, means he does them. He it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father. And Jesus says this, and he says, then I will love him. So you want to experience the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a matter of knowing what he says and obeying it. He says, you do that, he says, I will love you. And what else does he say there at the end? I will manifest myself to him. In other words, you are going to experience the love and presence. You will know the Lord Jesus Christ in a way you won't know if you don't obey him. Isn't that what it's saying there in verse 21? He that has my commandments and keeps them, that's the person that loves me. And when you love me and do that, you'll be loved of my Father, and I will love you, and I will manifest, make myself evident to him, to that person. And look over in the next chapter, chapter 15, and look what it says in verses 9 to 15. He says this, as the Father has loved me, tells his disciples, and he's writing this to you and I too, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. How do you do that? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. That's how you can know it. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends. You want to have Jesus as your friend? And he says, if you do whatsoever I command you. And henceforth, he says, I don't call you a slave. For the slave knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. So there's no shortcut, is there, to experiencing the presence and having a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing his love. There's no shortcut outside of obeying what he says. That's what we just read. It's only on the pathway of obedience, and I'm saying that will involve suffering. 
of some sort. Philippians 3, Paul says, that I may know him. He's saying, I have a purpose. He's saying, all these other things I did, he says, I kept the law blameless. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had the list. He was like, man, you wish you could be like him. And he says, I've thrown all that out in the dung pile. Consider it dung. Because that's all my righteousness. He says, I want the righteousness that comes from him only. His righteousness is what I need because I don't have a perfect righteousness and neither do you and neither did Paul. And that's what God demands. He says, you have to have a perfect righteousness. And how is that given to us? When we exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's called the great exchange that takes place. He got the raw end of the deal. He gets all our sin. That's what put him on the cross. That's what caused him to suffer. And yet we get through this union that takes place, his perfect righteousness. You don't work your way into that. I don't think everybody understands that. Do you realize the Christian that just gets saved and smoking his cigarette has got Jesus' perfect righteousness then? He's justified the moment he believes. You don't work your way into that. That's the Catholic view of things. So the moment you believe, you are perfectly righteous. You have his righteousness. Not in and of yourself. We never are. It's his righteousness that we have. That's what God sees. He sees us in Christ. And if he sees us out of Christ, anybody out of Christ is in big trouble. But if you trust him, give your life to him, commit yourself to him, and you are in him from day one on, you are in Christ. That's the way he sees you as righteous, as holy. Not because you are inherently that, but because his righteousness is imputed to us. And the Catholics say that doesn't happen. And no, the Bible says it does. And that's the heart of the Protestant Reformation. The doctrine of imputed righteousness. And so Paul says, this is my purpose. He says that I may know him. He wants a knowledge of him, a personal knowledge. He wants to know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what's going to happen when you know him. You'll realize his power. But you're also going to have a fellowship of his sufferings of some sort or something's not right with all of us if we're not experiencing that. That I may be made conformable unto his death. That is Paul's purpose. And how does that all happen? By God's grace. That's the only way that Paul could endure the sufferings, is knowing the power of his resurrection. And so 2 Corinthians 12, we talked about this, but I'm going to quote it again. But he, Jesus, said unto me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses or infirmities that the power of Christ, that's that power of his resurrection, that comes to you through your weaknesses, through the suffering, that the power of Christ, he says, may rest upon me. Therefore, he says, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am what? Then I am growing in grace. I'm experiencing the grace of God and his power. Because he says, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. That's all coming because of the grace that's promised. Amen? That's the way it works. And thinking about all this the other day, I've read this biography and I've seen movies of Eric Little. And I think his life, it exemplifies this principle of grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ he experienced through his suffering, so to speak. So how many in here have seen that movie, Chariots of Fire? Not very many. Wow. It's been around a while. It was back in the 80s. It's actually a, a pretty decent movie. But it's about Eric Little. So in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, Eric Little, he was known as the Flying Scot. He could run. And so his fastest race that he could run was the 100-meter dash. He's the favorite to win the Olympic 100-meter dash. Here's the only problem. They schedule it on Sunday. So Eric Little was the son of missionary. His mother and father were missionaries in China. And he got saved at a young age, and he had to tell them, I'm sorry, but I can't run this race on Sunday. And I mean, they were, everybody's trying to convince him that, man, you can do it. You're going to let your country down. You're gonna let that. 
and he wouldn't do it. He held to his convictions, wouldn't bend, was ridiculed by the whole world. And so instead, he entered the 400-meter race. He didn't even have the right form to run the 400 meters. He was in no way favored to win that race. But guess what? He did. He won the gold medal. He was the hero. Hero then, he became a hero, had all the glory. And that's where the movie ended. The movie ended with that. And it just had a little thing on there about Eric Little went on to be a missionary. Oh, no. But as far as God's concern and the importance of his life, it didn't end in the Olympics. Because he was preparing himself his whole life. He was prepared to be a missionary to China. And the rest of his life brought glory to God and showed his wonderful grace. Because Eric Little died in World War II in China in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. His gold medal winner. So as a boy, he went to college, Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh, and he would go there and preach and preach to the young man. And he had an anointing on him. He was a powerful preacher. Went on and ran in the Olympics, came back and finished his education there, getting himself ready to go over as a missionary to China. Married a, a woman named Florence. His wife's name was Florence. And he had three girls by Florence. Two of them he saw. His third daughter he never saw. Never got a seed that was born. I'll tell you why here in just a minute. So the Japanese, they invade him and his wife. They're missionaries in China with their two little girls. She's pregnant. The, the Japanese come in and they invade China during World War II. And rape and murder were their calling cards. And so Eric's seeing this go on and he's concerned for his wife and two daughters. He's like, I'm sending you guys over to Canada which is what he did. His pregnant wife and two daughters, he sent them over to Canada. He says, we'll join back up again when all this is over. But I'm going to stay here. God's called me and I need to stay here. His wife said, I never thought I would never see my husband again, but she never did. Never saw him. And so there he is in his concentration camp with other missionaries and unsaved Chinese people. And he became literally a living example of the love of Jesus and the willingness to suffer on behalf of others. Somebody just wrote about this, that there was a man named Langdon Gilkey. He was a liberal theologian, and he also was interred. He also was put into that same camp as Eric Little. So this man is observing everything that's going on here, this liberal theologian, and he wrote this book called Shantung Compound. And so what he did in this, he analyzed what happens when men and women are put under enormous pressure. And the conclusion that he came to was that for most of the captured prisoners that he observed, the experience brought out the worst in them and not the best, is what he said. So he said there was only a few exceptions that he wrote about in this book. And one of the exceptions was Eric Little. This is a liberal theologian, but here's what he wrote about Eric Little. He said, It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. If there were any evidences of the grace of God observable on the surface of our camp existence, they were to be found here. He's saying the only place I ever saw the grace of God exhibited, and all of the, and this is missionaries are here. He said, no. they said he was hardest on the missionaries. So there was business people there, unsaved business people. He said, ah, they just looked out for themselves. But he said, these missionaries who were supposed to be Christians, they said he was hard on them. He's like, these people didn't exhibit anything that you would think about as far as biblical Christianity and love, except for Eric Little. He was the only one. And you read about his life, I'd recommend you do. So when he was in that camp... The Japanese said, you're going to be the math and science teacher. You're going to organize sports activities. You're in charge of two large dormitories where there's single men, women, and children. You're going to be in charge of the Christian fellowship. And he was the number one translator for the Japanese. That's what he had to do. They put him in charge of all of that, okay? But he voluntarily took on burdens that no one else would. Nothing he was forced to do. Even the other missionaries wouldn't do what he did. So he'd help the old people, he'd help the sick, he'd help the infirm and the needy. He'd do things like carrying and supplying their coal and chopping wood for them so they had heat, the people that couldn't. And no one else was doing those types of things but him. For years he did this. One fellow prisoner said this, he says, Eric wore his strength down doing this kind of work. I can see him now carrying 
50-pound Red Cross parcels from the church to the homes of those who were old and feeble. I recall seeing him plodding up the camp road heavily loaded with buckets of coal dust and chips for making briquettes someone needed for a heater. This other girl who was a prisoner at the age of 14, Isabel Haran, says when Eric died, one of the women in the camp, a Russian prostitute in this camp, told my mother that Eric Little was the only man who had ever done anything for her and not wanted to be repaid in kind. I think when she first moved into camp, he'd gone and put some shells up for her. And she was a woman living on her own. She didn't have anyone to do that kind of thing. There were missionaries in the camp who wouldn't have helped someone like her. But Eric didn't see things that way. Another example, Norma Cliff talks about that there was a girl named Marjorie Winsard. She had typhoid fever, had to be isolated from everyone else, all the other internees in the camp. They put her in the morgue. And they said no one would go near that. It was the worst place in the world to be in that camp. They said sometimes people would take a stick and put a sheet over one of the dead bodies and then they'd run. But what he did, he said, she languished for weeks in that morgue during which time she witnessed the death of a Catholic nun that had the same disease that she had. But without fuss or fanfare, it said Eric Little made a point of stopping by each day to read to her and try to bring a little joy into her traumatized life. This lady said, no one could grumble long about conditions in the camp as Eric would dismiss them with a merry twinkle in his eye, pointing out some amusing incident or something to be happy about. His courtesy, his good nature, which I never saw ruffled, with his unswerving devotion to God and principles, helped us to pass over many happenings which could have resulted in some nasty incidents. And so what happened, though, the horrid conditions in that camp, they said it would have taken 5,000 calories at least for a man to do what he was doing, and he didn't even get 1,200 a day because a lot of times he'd give his food away if someone had a need. And so all of this starts wearing down on him, lack of proper nutrition, the workload, the responsibility. And so eventually... There was disease just rampant in that place. He started getting these severe headaches, and he started having memory loss, had a stroke. And to make, I could make this a lot longer, but I won't. But eventually, he died. And when they did an autopsy on him, they found he had this huge brain tumor. But all of the time, the whole time, he had a smile on his face up to the very end and was helping people out to the very day he died, despite all those severe headaches he had. And his last words to this friend he had, this lady that was a friend of his, he looked at her right before he went into a coma and died several hours later. But here was his commitment to Jesus. This is what I want to see. I'm thinking, this guy, this is what it means to be a Christian. And he looked her in the face and he says, Annie, it's complete surrender. And that was the last words he spoke. And we sang that song, Ben sang that song tonight, I surrender all. And that's the man that actually lived it. I think, man, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And how much of that, I'm thinking for myself, how much of that with the trials I got, am I showing that to my family and people around me? And here's this guy got a smile and a twinkle on his face going through a literal hell on earth at this concentration camp. So this guy, a fellow missionary, he said this, this will be my last quote. He said, of all the men I have ever known, Eric Little was the one in whose character and life the spirit of Jesus Christ was preeminently manifested. And all of us who were privileged to know him with any intimacy echo this judgment. What was the secret of his consecrated life and far-reaching influence? Absolute surrender to God's will as revealed in Jesus Christ. His was a God-controlled life, and he followed his master and Lord with a devotion that never flagged and with an intensity of purpose that made men see both the reality and the power of true religion. And every day in that camp, he got up at 4.30 and prayed before he had a full day of helping other people out, spent time with the Lord. Worked on the Sermon on the Mount, had teaching, he had Bible studies all the time. He told his wife, he wrote a letter to his wife, he says, I don't know how much I'm helping other people, I don't know how good I am at all this, but it's helping my soul. And I guarantee you, he helped a lot of other people out. So, we're saying, we'll grow in grace and in the knowledge, that's what Peter's talking about. 
of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Savior by being obedient. How? In the circumstances that he's placed us in. Isn't that how it's going to work? Puts us into circumstances in the future. And Eric Little, I mean, he could have had glory and fame and stayed in England. Instead, he chose to be a missionary and to follow his Lord. And he didn't grumble about the circumstances that he ended in. And who else do we know in the Bible that didn't do that? Joseph didn't do that, did he? Stayed faithful to God, and God blessed him, didn't he? And Peter was the same way. Peter and Paul and on and on and on. And we can be that way too, can't we? By the grace of God in our lives. That will happen. And the last thing, if you turn back over there to 2 Peter 3, look at the last thing Peter writes, the very last thing in his letter. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so when we do that, when we know to live in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, it's going to be because we've learned that our lives need to be lived. How? For the glory of God, not centered on ourselves. And I don't know how many of us do that because we do what we want to do. We want to have our comfort. We have our plans. We have everything we want to do, our goals. And these people we're reading about in the Bible and people like Eric Little, that's not the way they lived their lives, did they? And that's what it's all about. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is because they've had their eyes open to something. And they've experienced something about the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't they? And I get from that, Peter, when I read that, that he is bursting at the seams. He's down at the end of that letter. He knows he's getting ready to see his Lord. Now, this is the man that even denied the Lord. But he has seen his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knows what's coming, but he's experienced his love in a way that I don't know how many people have. But he says, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. And Paul constantly at the end of his letters would write like that. At the end of the epistle of the Romans, he says, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen? And that should be the way we live our lives. Amen? To glorify him, our Savior that gave all for us. If we could just keep that in the forefront of our minds as we begin our day and go throughout our day. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and your encouragement that we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that you'll help us all through your grace to lead obedient lives that we can experience more of your presence and your love and your concern for us, Lord, as your hands on us and that we can live for the glory of your name for all that you've done for us and, and display to the world like Eric Little did the fruit of the Spirit and just that selfless love that just all the testimonies of the people that knew him just glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of grace in his life. And I just ask that you'll give us hearts like that, Father. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.